J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, mavitvishavahai. Welcome to the Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. This is my podcast, and today I'm being interviewed by one of my producers, Eric Kane. And Eric, thank you for coming in. We're going to have a look at bridges and walls and the kinds of implications for people who wish to have a spiritual worldview about the polarization that's occurring, not just in the United States, perhaps this is a main showcase for it, but all over the world politically. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, it's an absolute pleasure. I guess the first question really right off the bat is just how as a meditator do you deal with um, such polarization? How do you deal with people who, whose views you would disagree upon? It's interesting because there are thousands and thousands of meditators who are supporters of the right, who are voters for the right, the political right, just as there are thousands and thousands of meditators who are politically left. And this is a very interesting thing to me. You cannot necessarily make an assumption about whether the demographic of people who meditate is left-leaning politically or right-leaning. There are people all over the political map who make use of the same one technique for going within. So I think the first thing is for us to see that what's occurred very palpably in terms of the United States political breadth of experience in the last year and a half has been really a wake-up call, a reality call to everyone that, in fact, there's not just one view that everybody thinks is the sensible view, that there are millions, tens of millions, who think that their view is right and there are tens of millions of others who think that their view is right. And then this all comes down to there's a world out there, there are needs, there's change occurring. What is our response to change? One thing is absolutely certain, that whether we're looking at this as an individual's uh, reality or a social reality, change itself is inevitable. Change is inevitable. 
the question really is in what direction does change go? If we resist change, the Vedic worldview is that change will then convert into decay of a steady state, the disintegration of whatever it is that's resisting it. Therefore, the Vedic worldview is all about leaning in the direction of progressive change, change that is bringing about the new. One of the things that happens during stress when we're under stress is we tend to kind of fall back on a minimal number of reactive traits, fight or flee. Fight the thing, the demand which says this is a change of expectation. If we don't feel that we have the capacity to adapt successfully, then our first reaction is to fight. If fighting doesn't look like it's going to work, then we can flee. And flee is not necessarily literally running. It could include going catatonic. That means, you know, just withdrawing utterly. If we can draw anything positive out of all the political polarization of the last 18 months or so, and I'm now talking in the United States context, is that there are very few people who no longer have a view. I found this fascinating. I do believe that if politically the voting had swung as an electoral college majority, you know, I'm not talking about popular vote, but electoral college majority in the direction of the Democrats, we wouldn't have had the Women's March. We wouldn't have had people en masse trying to think about where they stand in things. One of the benefits of polarization is that people begin to form and develop an opinion. The worst thing that can happen in a country is for people not to care. There are some countries that have mandatory voting, that there are penalties if you don't vote. My issue, and this is a personal issue, is just that I feel that the right is not uh, for progress that they are very scared of change and that their way of thinking is very outdated and that um, there's a kind of racism and misogynism that specifically comes from the political party that seems to be heavily male and of a certain age that are very resistant to change. So it's very hard for me in my bubble in New York particularly to A, meet those type of people and B, to even understand them. It almost feels disingenuous to me, like they're not being, it just seems, they, some of their views just seem absolutely crazy to me. And I'm sure that there are thousands of listeners who agree with you and have had the same experience, and there may be thousands or hundreds of listeners who are going, but we do stand for progress. It's just progress of what we are. Um, we need to go out and, you know, get the American ideal out there. And, you know, if only people knew, they'd all go for it. So my take on this is whoever it is who wants people who are resistant to change to begin becoming warming to change, whoever it is that is feeling that needs to do something about it other than simply shutting down the people who they have identified as not wanting change, then What's the next move? I'll state some extremes and then I'll tell you what I really think. You know, the extreme would be continue ignoring, continue keeping them away, continue to not listen, and 
I really do think, and it's only been a hundred and some years since the United States engaged in a civil war that consumed the lives of one million people. You know, the greatest death toll of any war in the United, that the United States has engaged in by a factor of about 10 was the civil war in the United States. This is a country that if it's pushed to its polarized absolute points is well armed. In fact, that's one of the issues. It's not necessarily even outside the reach of imagination to think that people who are very left-leaning might go so far left that they arm up too. We don't need to do that research over again. Something new has to happen. And as I said, the first victim of the fight-flight reaction is creativity, finding a new way of doing things. So we fall back on the old ways of doing things. Let's get back to the known. And the known actually turns out to be dangerous. We need to embrace the unknown. The unknown, and perhaps unthinkable, would be to gently inspire worthy inquiry about, and this is you know one of the essential things in getting any transfer of information, we have to have worthy inquiry. And where there isn't any, it means we're failing to inspire it. I think that from the point of view of the middle and the liberal side of the United States, what happened 18 months ago was a demonstration of a failure to really bring people with you. The assumption was made anybody would know that our point of view is right. Well, it turns out that that assumption was an incorrect one. So if somebody has become a broader thinker, if somebody has become broad-minded and perhaps better informed across a range of current affairs topics, if somebody has been better informed about history and then the cascades of events that come from certain kinds of limited thinking, how did they get that way? how they get better informed? What was it that made them a better informed person? In other words, in what ways are we who consider ourselves to be the illuminated ones, in what way are we failing to bring people who would otherwise be considered absolutely lovable? I mean, there's a documentary that you can watch right now, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's a very current documentary by an American man who decided that he, as a liberal, was going to go out into the red heart of America and dine with the families and go to the barbecues and go to the churches and sit in and listen to them and see what makes them tick. And he takes his cameras with him. Well, you would have insight from that living in Arizona part of the time. Yeah, my home is Arizona. I do see sometimes, you know, quite incredible ways of behaving. I remember overhearing a conversation in a cafe between a couple of cowpokes. It was outside my little blue town of Flagstaff. We're a blue town in a red ocean. Cowpoke number one says to the others, so what do you think about, and he used the N-word, becoming a president? And the other guy goes, well, I don't think we're ready for that. However... We did have a Catholic as a president once. That was JFK. And the guy who's wanting to become president is a Muslim, incorrectly identifying Barack Obama as a Muslim. 
it's about time for us to get a Mormon in. And I'm not a Mormon, but I'd rather have a Mormon than one of those. And so then what you're really hearing in that dialogue is just a repetition of inaccurate information. Well, that's kind of my point there. I feel like certain types of people, they don't seem to fight very fair. They don't fight with facts or they don't think in facts. And I'm wondering, it seems to me that some of them are just too old to be able to come up with new ideas. And they feel very entitled just by none of their doing, that they happen to have come into America at a time where they didn't do anything to have this position. They just were born into it, so to speak. Why can't somebody else from a different race, different time, different ethnicity or whatever, be able to also have a share of it? When I first traveled around the world with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, my teacher, during an era where everybody had short hair, he had long hair down past his shoulders and a long beard. And, you know, the Beatles hadn't even grown their hair yet. Back when the Beatles were still wearing identical little, you know, uniforms and outfits, Maharishi wore robes and wooden sandals. I went to uh, Sydney with him, and there was an opportunity. There were thousands and thousands of people wanted to come and see him. For him to speak, I needed to find a venue that could hold at least 3,000 people. I went to the Sydney Town Hall, and this was during an era when Australia actively and proudly participated in a thing called the White Australia Policy. People of color or who were of Asian descent or of African descent could only get a visa for a very short time in the country, and you certainly couldn't be a resident. And I walked into the Sydney Town Hall, and there were a couple of guys there behind the counter, and I said, I want to uh, rent the hall for, you know, Thursday night. And they said, sure, mate, you know, uh, fill in this form and, you know, this is what it's going to cost. You'll have to put a deposit down today and all of that. But what what's happening in the town hall? And I had a little flyer with a picture of Maharishi. They looked at the flyer and they went, one of them looked over at the other one and said, we're going to have problems. It's a darkie. It's a darkie. <laughs> and I said, what? Really? This is a famous person. He goes, look, listen, you're going to need to find a different hall. We won't be able to have him here. The other guy looks at me, and he was feeling a bit sympathetic. And he said, there's a dance hall about two blocks down. They'll take you. They take everybody. <laughs> and so I went down and booked the dance hall and the Trocadero, as it was called, and it was filled to overflowing out into the streets. We had you know, loudspeakers out in the streets. Maharishi gave his lecture to 3,000 people, and then he personally taught 800 people to meditate over the next few days. So interesting how if you actually have something to offer that is going to change people's experience in some way, that then they'll begin to change their minds. So I met a lot of racists in Australia when I was first there. I was astonished how racist the place was. And I even had people who I taught to meditate when I'd show them a picture of my teacher, Maharishi, they'd say, well, you know, you know, that just goes to show you can be a darkie and still bring something valuable to the world. And as racist a statement as that is, it's one step beyond, we don't want to learn anything from that. And then gradually, 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 he becomes known as the supreme authority on a certain body of knowledge. 
and you know millions of people want it. So how do we build a bridge to the wall builders? Somehow a bridge has got to be built because the alternative, truly in my opinion, I saw it in 1968 with the Weathermen and the Weathermen 2, Tom Hayden's uh, organization. It was, you know, the Weathermen were like extreme left. It was during LBJ's time and it was smash authority, kill whatever people you need to kill, blow up government offices. If you have to, said Hayden, kill your parents. How extreme do we allow this thing to go? Well, that's a great question. I mean, according to the Vedic worldview, when is it our right to fight? When is it okay to not turn the other cheek if somebody smacks you? When is it appropriate? I think when things have gone beyond a point of no return. It's a fact that the knowledge that I teach was most critically taught, most famously taught on a battlefield from a great guru who you know, has been deified as Krishna over the years, but from a great guru to his student who was the general of an army on a battlefield in a no-man's land between two sides that were just eager to tear each other to pieces. And Krishna's advice to his student, Arjuna, was, you can't be a pacifist. Arjuna was saying, I can't do this, partly because the other side were his cousins, just to make the story a little bit more spicy. They were his own cousins. Krishna says, look, if you wanted to be a pacifist, the time to tell me about that would have been about 14 years ago. We could have made an arrangement then where this didn't have to happen, but now we're at this point, and unless you fight and fight to kill, the other side is going to debauch the entire culture and destroy it. And by the way, that's just their nature so they won't be responsible for it. It won't be their karma. The fact that they did it will be your karma because it's your nature to be able to destroy their destructive power now. But if you refuse to do that, then they're just going to wipe you out and your whole army and they'll take over and thousands of years of civilization will be nothing. So this isn't the day to decide to be a pacifist. And Arjuna said, I just can't do it. And he goes, let's meditate. Here's how you meditate. Taught him meditation out in the battlefield and then said, go for it. Now, there are many lessons in this, but the main one is you did not avert the danger that came early enough. We want victory before war. If we can get it, we want victory before war. Having to have victory once we're in a war is a dreadful thing because all the depredations of war that we know all too well. And this is a nation that is supposed to be exemplary to the world. It needs to be a nation that learns before violence how to heal itself. And if we wait, supposing that we take the view that we have the higher consciousness, meaning, you know, we, meaning people who are more liberal thinking, have the higher consciousness, and we're just waiting for the others to stop being the way they are, how are they going to stop being the way they are without some assistance from us? So what is that assistance? That That's really at the heart of it. We have people who are very resistant to change right now, and it, and it appears from an outside point of view, at least, you know, that there's some really significant things that could happen, like currently in the news, that could really push back progress to a large, you know, m to the some mysterious time in the 40s 
when women couldn't vote, or you weren't allowed to have an abortion or be gay, or, you know, it, it just seems like they're trying to push it back to something like that. Yeah, and you put your finger on it, which is it tends to be those who grew up in that era and who are now white-headed and wanting to be sure that they preserve those old values mm -hmm. to pass them down to the next generation. But let's remember that the next generation, the very young ones, are the ones who are on their iPhones. They may be getting indoctrinated at home, but if there's anyone who has the potential for being open-minded, it's not likely to be the oldies. It's likely to be the youth. But the oldies are now in power at the moment, and they are making changes. I mean, currently in the news right now, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, that it's a lifetime appointment mm -hmm. that could overturn Roe versus Wade mm -hmm. currently. Um, so let's talk about bridges and walls in a situation like that and when it's okay to fight. If things become bad enough that absolutely there is no other option, whether it's okay or not, fighting in fact will happen. Violence will break out. Therefore, since that is so horrible, it's incumbent on the meditators of the world, whether they are right-leaning or left-leaning, to start figuring out a way, and I'm appealing to the youth, the youth, don't let the generation that came before you put you in a position where you have to fight your brethren, your sisters and brothers. Something needs to be done that is radical and different because nobody wins. When fighting breaks out, nobody actually wins. It's just the entire culture just goes backwards. And in the end, progressive change is going to win out. There's just no question about it. The question is, how much of the population will be able to survive the transition? Will the transition be violent, or will the transition be smooth? We'd like to see smooth transition. And, you know, this is not like me making a threat, you know, of any kind for those who are super conservative listening to this. I'm not advocating violence. What I'm advocating is averting dangers before they come. The youth need to figure out a way of building the bridges where the elders are talking about walls. Let's create a wall against, you know, people who are different culture and different skin color to us. But hang on, you know, you're going to build a wall against California, um, block it off from the rest of the country. You know, you're going to build walls around Arizona to keep Arizona red. Where do the walls stop? Once you start building walls, you're going to end up creating a labyrinth. What we need to do is find the youth. This is the challenge for the youth. Find ways of discovering areas of commonality one of those areas, I dare say, is the beautiful effect of meditation that can be enjoyed by everybody. If people practice this twice every day, they start to become less easily indoctrinated. One of the great things about regular practice of meditation, it makes you less suggestible. In order to be hypnotized, let's put it this way, in order to be indoctrinated, one has to have a degree of suggestibility. Suggestibility is always higher, the cruel word would be gullibility, is always higher when somebody's under stress. When people are less stressed, 
it's harder to hypnotize them. And all of us need to wake up from the hypnosis of social conditioning, whether it's the conditioning provided by the left, and I accuse the left of turning 65 or 70 million Americans into them and turning, you know, the rest of us into us. I think that that mentality has come more from the left than it has from the right. But I also offer the critique of the right that there is resistance to progressive change and that progressive change is something that cannot be fought successfully. The history of biological evolution is that unless you embrace progressive change enthusiastically, then you go extinct. And that extinction can take any number of forms. So if there are people who have ideals that they want to continue enjoying over the next many generations, find ways of enshrining those ideals into statements of a political nature that do not call upon the rest of the population simply not to progress. Find ways of enshrining your ideals that don't ram them down the throat of people who simply will turn violent if you attempt that. And for those who are left-leaning, make it attractive. Make it attractive from youth to youth. Make it cool to be an expansive thinker. <laughs> make it cool to be someone who is broad-minded and willing to listen to a different point of view. I think both sides are unable to listen to the point of view of the other. I think in a, in a certain point, liberals have become lazy after doing this for many, many years. And they've kind of lost that a little bit and thought that it was going their way. Is there a bigger picture understanding that this is really the way that it has to go for some reason to get progressive change? Does it have to get worse in a purge, perhaps? Or is there something that I'm not seeing here? It does definitely have to get worse. Whether it has to go all the way to purge is a question of the rigidity of the participants. How far do we have to go towards extreme pain and maybe even death before we're going to allow change to percolate into the system? And it doesn't need to be radical change. You know, a little bit of change here and there, you know. Let the change begin happening. It doesn't have to happen right across the board. Just as an example of this, the very fact that I can identify and have identified, it was totally surprised me. Many meditators who had approached me after I'd given certain talks and things saying, why are you anti-Trump? And I'm like, no idea that this person was someone who was in that political leaning. And I just say, look, I'm not anti anything or anybody, I'm a great believer that whatever happened at the White House is a reflection of the average of the nation. Certainly, he's not there on his own unrepresented. You know, the constituency is certainly in the tens of millions. The way that the system is currently set up in, you know, electoral college yeah. versus majority of yeah. the people, you know, and so on. Clearly, that's the case. It, it is a hard to understand why a state like California versus Montana has the same amount of representatives. And this comes up every presidential election. But sadly, the people who wish it wasn't so 
have not organized themselves to get a change in the Constitution to stop that from happening because that's a leftover from the days of slavery in the United States. The Electoral College was put in place to stop people of color being able to win office. Now, the real question is, is it salvageable? I always tend to be an optimist until it's impossible to be optimistic anymore, but I do think it's salvageable. But if it's going to be salvaged, there's a couple of key points, commonality of experience, and particularly the awakening of the youth to finding commonality in whether it's cultural phenomena, whether it's music. You know, this is a very interesting thing. I know a few rock people who went to Israel and had rock concerts where Palestinians and Israelis, 30,000 people, about 50% each way, and everybody just danced and listened to the music because it appealed to both sides. So there are things like music. There are things like meditation. There are things that can be a common feature between people. So how do we look at, let's say, very specifically, Donald Trump in an enlightened way in terms of the Vedic worldview? I think the sooner he retires, the better. And there are a lot of people in his own party who are beginning to realize that he's not actually about party politics. He's about himself. And he's beginning to make it difficult for those who are the genuine Republicans who want to get their agendas in place because Mr. Trump hasn't had sufficient government experience to know that he actually has to represent a constituency. <laughs> he appears to be more interested simply in representing himself and defending himself. So is there like an enlightened way to think about how to deal with him? You know, is it better to try and work within that administration type of thing? to try to resist it. I struggle with this all the time. Is there an enlightened way to say, you know, it would be better to try and, you know, be part of this so that he would make some of his changes, or are we going to have to fight it tooth and nail? I am deeply impressed by what Mahatma Gandhi and his movement did in India. They lost people. People often say it was a nonviolent revolution. It's not true. There were tens of thousands of Indians executed, shot, and beaten to death and things by the British. But in the end, there wasn't actually a war. The Indians just basically said, we're not cooperating. We refuse to cooperate with the regime. The British said, we'll beat you into it. And they said, beat away. We're not fighting back. Gandhi himself loved getting jailed because it was publicity. Every time he would be thrown in jail, his movement got bigger and stronger. Every time he would cop a beating and not fight back, his movement got bigger and stronger. And over a period of about eight years, the British had just had enough. They had enough and they said, it's untenable for us to stay here. That to me, considering that it was in relatively modern times, and it wasn't ancient history, to shake off the largest empire in the world and show them the door, and for them at first saying, no, no, you know, we'll build enough jails to jail all of you, and we'll find ways of bringing the laws uh, against you. But it happened in India, and I'm still continuously astonished by that fact. But it took a revolutionary and creative way of thinking, nonviolent, non-cooperation, 
and it's only a matter of time, but you're going to go. So if, in fact, the liberal undercurrent of the country, whether they're voting or not, is big enough, if it comes to having to make a desperate move, taking some pages from Mohandas Gandhi's book, I think, would be a wise move prior to taking up arms. And we're already seeing it, frankly. The New York Times op-ed was, in fact, an op-ed about civil disobedience. That's what it was. And what are you going to do if you're the head of state and they still don't know who that was? They think it's everybody, <laughs> you know. Once you see a curtain wiggle over there, you think there's a ghost in every room of the house. I think that the disintegration of the worst of the political outcome of the last 18 months has already started. It's already disintegrating. And, you know, it's no secret that the Secretary of Defense is not a fan of his boss. Not a good sign. <laughs> Obviously, there's enough of an undercurrent of saying we're not going to let the worst of these ideas come to fruit. Okay, that's one way of doing things. Get into the polls and vote. There's an election coming up. Don't just stay home and feed your Twitter and your Instagram account on voting day. If you're not registered, get registered. If you are registered, get out and vote your mind and let's see who really is whom. Don't make the assumption that other people are going to take care of it. Other people are not going to take care of it. It's either you or it's nobody. This is supposedly a democracy. It's actually a republic, but a republic is where the people delegate governance to the government. The United States actually technically is not a democracy. We have an electoral college, for example, where there's a delegation of our voting process. It's a unique in the world. We vote and then somebody else interprets how we voted. <laughs> um, however, votes do count and people do get dismayed and think it won't make any difference. I can't make a difference. I'm just one person. But if millions and millions of people change their mind about that and just get into the polls, then the nation will have a chance of leading. And it's not going to unite everybody, but it's a fact that in every evolutionary system, it is the few that lead the many. So inspiration needs to start happening. And my message to the Democrats is, can you please get on with finding somebody? Not in October, prior to the November of the presidential election, can you please get on with finding somebody who can be an inspiration and bring everybody together? I think that by the time that comes around, and if that is done, it's likely that some of the youth in the red states, a significant percentage of them might be tired of what right. they've been seeing. Well, one of the questions is you see some of these candidates, um, Michael Avenatti now, who's also talking about, you know, you can't necessarily, with a bully, you kind of have to fight back. Do you have an opinion about that? Again, using the Gandhi thing, Britain was a big bully. The Indians just figured out a way of dismantling them. Fighting may not be the most effective thing to do because, especially if the side you're fighting is well prepared for that. However, disintegrating their capability to actually get a thing done. That's what Indians did. They basically made it impossible for the government to govern. Mm. And so then 
it could be more effective than fighting to just undermine the entire castle rather than fighting the castle and make it fall down. But hopefully it doesn't come to that. I think that our society does have a due process. It's just that we haven't been participating in it. To me, it's not the fact that somebody's in office who a lot of people don't like, even though a lot do like him. If we claim to be the majority, if we claim that somehow that that all happened by tricks and smoke and mirrors of the Electoral College, prove it. Get the numbers out. Change that. The United States does have a constitutional methodology whereby you can create change. So get on with doing that. And we're approaching election time right now. Get out there and do something about it. Do you have any personal stories about changing somebody's mind that you thought couldn't be changed? It happens every single day to me, Eric. The key to it basically is not to fight them, but to discover their weak spots. And their weak spots are the spots where you can make sense to them in one area. I call that the thin end of the wedge. And once you're in there, then you have plausibility and credibility. And as long as you don't try to create too much change too fast, then you can cause somebody, you can get a rock to melt. And I'm in the business of melting rocks. I did it just yesterday. I can't name any names, obviously, but I was told by someone who knew this person that there was someone coming to my introductory talk who was vehemently opposed to everything about me, uh, to me personally, and everything about me and everything I taught and was planning to heckle me in the meeting. And uh, I just thought, well, okay, bring it on. Rather than getting my little tiny defense department of two people to exclude this person, I just thought, bring it on. And I have to say, for all the reputation that came prior to it, it was a pushover. And because if, in fact, you think you have something valuable, you need to learn how to present it with undeniable logic, undeniable logic, unassailable logic. Because if, in fact, you have a way of life, a philosophy, a way of being, if it's working for you, in fact, it must be able to melt the rocks. It must be able to actually make sense to the other person, provided you don't take a confrontational approach. My approach is to, first of all, I switch on my atmosphere of love and acceptance, and they walk into that aura, and they're breathing the airborne hormones of my friendliness and compassion and happiness and already their wall is getting thin. And then I just have to find something which is going to be an area of interest for them. In this particular case, it was athletics. It was so fascinating. The person to whom I was speaking denied the science of meditation, which is solid, denied the logic of meditating, but it turned out that he was a fan of football. And I just said, me too, because I've taught lots of football teams, meditation. 
I said, who are you, uh, who was your favorite team? He goes, ah, oh, I long for the New York Jets. And I said, Joe Namath, right? And he goes, oh man, Joe, back in his day. I said, Joe's one of my students. <laughs> and I had him. <laughs> Everything else failed. But Joe's one of my students. Joe learned to meditate. He talks about it openly. I'll send you a few articles. And um, suddenly I had something. There was my bridge. And over that bridge will come all the other fabulous things. And it's the speed with which somebody will just let go of their opposition the moment you suddenly have something that they're interested in. It's just amazing. <laughs> That's a perfect bridge. Will you uh, sing us a little song to take us out? Yes, I will. I'll sing you a song in Sanskrit. Great. It's uh, a song in praise of my teacher. But as with all Vedic songs, it is the sound value that has the greatest power. It's a structured group of sounds. And so if people would like to just sit in their simplest form of awareness and listen. Aingkara rinkara rahasya yukta Shrihinkara guttarta mahaviputya Ohumkara marma pratipadinipyam Namo namaha Shri Guru Padukapyam Loka Jnana Payoda Patanduram Shri Shankaram Sharmadam Brahmananda Sarasvatim Guruvaram Tiyayami Jyotirmayam Jai Gurudev if you are enjoying the Vedic Worldview podcast, if you're getting something out of it, I'd like you to consider something. This is a completely listener-funded program. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>